Chapters 9 through 11 of On the Eve by Ivan Turgenev, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Shubin went back to his room in the lodge and was just opening a book when Nikolai Artemyevich's valet came cautiously into his room and handed him a small triangular note sealed with a thick heraldic crest. I hope, he founded the note, that you, as a man of honour, will not allow yourself to hint by so much as a single word at a certain promissory note which was talked of this morning. You are acquainted with my position and my rules, the insignificance of the sum in itself and the other circumstances. There are, in fine, family secrets which must be respected, and family tranquillity is something so sacred that only êtres sans cour, among whom I have no reason to reckon you, would repudiate it. Give this note back to me. N. S. Shubin scribbled below in pencil. Don't excite yourself, I'm not quite a sneak yet, and gave the note back to the man, and again began upon the book. But it soon slipped out of his hands. He looked at the reddening sky, at the two mighty young pines standing apart from the other trees, thought, by day pines are bluish, but how magnificently green they are in the evening, and went out into the garden in the secret hope of meeting Elena there. He was not mistaken. Before him on a path between the bushes he caught a glimpse of her dress. He went after her, and when he was abreast with her remarked, "'Don't look in my direction. I'm not worth it.' She gave him a cursory glance, smiled cursorily, and walked on further into the depths of the garden. Shubin went after her. "'I beg you not to look at me,' he began, "'and then I address you. Flagrant contradiction. But what of that? It's not the first time I've contradicted myself. I have just recollected that I have never begged your pardon as I ought for my stupid behaviour yesterday. You are not angry with me, Elena Nikolaevna, are you?' She stood still and did not answer him at once not because she was angry, but because her thoughts were far away. No, she said at last, I am not in the least angry. Shubin bit his lip. What an absorbed, what an indifferent face, he muttered. Elena Nikolaevna, he continued, raising his voice, allow me to tell you a little anecdote. I had a friend, and this friend also had a friend, who at first conducted himself as befits a gentleman, but afterwards took to drink. So one day, early in the morning, my friend meets him in the street, and by that time, note, the acquaintance has been completely dropped, meets him and sees he is drunk. My friend went and turned his back on him. But he ran up and said, I would not be angry, says he, if you refuse to recognize me, but why should you turn your back on me? Perhaps I have been brought to this through grief. Peace to my ashes. Shubin paused. And is that all? inquired Elena. Yes, that's all. I don't understand you. What are you hinting at? You told me just now not to look your way. Yes, and now I have told you that it's too bad to turn your back on me. But did I? began Elena. Did you not? Elena flushed slightly and held out her hand to Shubin. He pressed it warmly. Here you seem to have convicted me of a bad feeling, said Elena, but your suspicion is unjust. I was not even thinking of avoiding you. Granted, granted. 
but you must acknowledge that at that minute you had a thousand ideas in your head, of which you would not confide one to me, eh? I've spoken the truth, I'm quite sure. Perhaps so. And why is it? Why? My ideas are not clear to myself, said Elena. Then it's just the time for confiding them to someone else, put in Shubin. But I will tell you what it really is. You have a bad opinion of me. I? Yes, you. You imagine that everything in me is half humbug because I am an artist, that I am incapable not only of doing anything, in that you are very likely right, but even of any genuine deep feeling. You think that I am not capable even of weeping sincerely, that I am a gossip and a slanderer, and all because I am an artist. What luckless, godforsaken wretches we artists are after that! You, for instance, I am ready to adore, and you don't believe in my repentance. No, Pavel Yakovlitch, I believe in your repentance, and I believe in your tears. But it seems to me that even your repentance amuses you. Yes, and your tears, too. Shubin shuddered. Well, I see this is, as the doctors say, a hopeless case, casus incurabilis. There is nothing left but to bow the head and submit. And meanwhile, good heavens, can it be true? Can I possibly be absorbed in my own egoism when there was a soul like this living at my side? And to know that one will never penetrate into that soul, never will know why it grieves and why it rejoices, what is working within it, what it desires, whither it is going? Tell me, he said, after a short silence, could you never under any circumstances love an artist? Elena looked straight into his eyes. I don't think so, Pavel Yakovlitch, no. Which was to be proved, said Shubin, with comical dejection, after which I suppose it would be more seemly for me not to intrude on your solitary walk. A professor would ask you on what data you founded your answer no. I'm not a professor, though, but a baby, according to your ideas. But one does not turn one's back on a baby, remember. Good-bye. Peace to my ashes. Elena was on the point of stopping him, but after a moment's thought she, too, said, Good-bye. Shubin went out of the courtyard. At a short distance from the Stahov's house he was met by Bersenev. He was walking with hurried steps, his head bent, and his hat pushed back on his neck. Andrei Petrovitch cried Shubin. He stopped. Go on, go on, continued Shubin. I only shouted, I won't detain you, and you'd better slip straight into the garden. You'll find Elena there. I fancy she's waiting for you. She's waiting for someone, anyway. Do you understand the force of those words, she is waiting? And do you know, my dear boy, an astonishing circumstance? Imagine, it's two years now that I have been living in the same house with her. I'm in love with her, and it's only just now, this minute, that I've not understood, but really seen her. I have seen her, and I lifted up my hands in amazement. Don't look at me, please, with that sham, sarcastic smile, which does not suit your sober features. Well, now, I suppose you want to remind me of Anyushka. What of it? I don't deny it. Anyushkas are on my poor level. And long life to all Anyushkas and Zoyas, and even Augustina Kristianovnas. You go to Elena now, and I will make my way to Anyushka, you fancy? No, my dear fellow, worse than that, to Prince Chikurasov. He is a Messinus of a Kazan Tartar stock, after the style of Volgin. 
Do you see this note of invitation, these letters, R.S.V.P.? Even in the country there's no peace for me. Addio. Bersenev listened to Shubin's tirade in silence, looking as though he were just a little ashamed of him. Then he went into the courtyard of the Sakhoff's house, and Shubin really did go to Prince Chikurasov, to whom, with the most cordial air, he began saying the most insulting things. The Messinus of the Tartars of Kazan chuckled, the Messinus's guests laughed, but no one felt merry, and every one was in a bad temper when the party broke up. So, two gentlemen slightly acquainted may be seen when they meet on the Nevsky Prospect, suddenly grinning at one another, and pursing up their eyes and noses and cheeks, and then, directly they have passed one another, they resume their former, indifferent, often cross, and generally sickly expression. CHAPTER Ten. Elena met Bersenev cordially, though not in the garden, but the drawing-room, and at once, almost impatiently, renewed the conversation of the previous day. She was alone. Nikolai Artemyevich had slipped quietly away. Anna Vasilyevna was lying down upstairs, with a wet bandage on her head. Zoya was sitting by her, the folds of her skirt arranged precisely about her, and her little hands clasped on her knees. Uva Ivanovitch was reposing in the attic, on a wide and comfortable divan, known as a samoson, or dozer. Bersenev again mentioned his father. He held his memory sacred. Let us, too, say a few words about him. The owner of eighty-two serfs, whom he set free before his death, an old Göttingen student and disciple of the Illuminati, the author of a manuscript work on Transformations or Typifications of the Spirit in the World, a work in which Schelling's philosophy, Swedenborgianism, and Republicanism were mingled in the most original fashion. Bersenev's father brought him, while still a boy, to Moscow immediately after his mother's death, and at once himself undertook his education. He prepared himself for each lesson, exerted himself with extraordinary conscientiousness and absolute lack of success. He was a dreamer, a bookworm, and a mystic. He spoke in a dull, hesitating voice, used obscure and roundabout expressions, metaphorical by preference, and was shy even of his son, whom he loved passionately. It was not surprising that his son was simply bewildered at his lessons, and did not advance in the least. The old man, he was almost fifty, he had married late in life, surmised at last that things were not going quite right, and he placed his Andre in a school. Andre began to learn, but he was not removed from his father's supervision. His father visited him unceasingly, wearying the schoolmaster to death with his instructions and conversations. The teachers, too, were bored by his uninvited visits. He was for ever bringing them some, as they said, far-fetched books on education. Even the schoolboys were embarrassed at the sight of the old man's swarthy, pockmarked face, his lank figure invariably clothed in a sort of scanty grey dress-coat. The boys did not suspect then that this grim, unsmiling old gentleman, with his crane-like gait and his long nose, was at heart troubling and yearning over each one of them almost as over his own son. He once conceived the idea of talking to them about Washington. "'My young nurslings,' he began, but at the first sound of his strange voice the young nurslings ran away. 
The good old Göttingen student did not lie on a bed of roses. He was forever weighed down by the march of history, by questions and ideas of every kind. When young Bersenev entered the university, his father used to drive with him to the lectures, but his health was already beginning to break up. The events of the year 1848 shook him to the foundation. It necessitated the rewriting of his whole book, and he died in the winter of 1853, before his son's time at the university was over, but he was able beforehand to congratulate him on his degree, and to consecrate him to the service of science. I pass on the torch to you, he said to him two hours before his death. I held it while I could. You, too, must not let the light grow dim before the end. Bersenev talked a long while to Elena of his father. The embarrassment he had felt in her presence disappeared, and his lisp was less marked. The conversation passed on to the university. Tell me, Elena asked him, were there any remarkable men among your comrades? Bersenev was again reminded of Shubin's words. No, Elena Nikolaevna, to tell you the truth, there was not a single remarkable man among us. And indeed, where are such to be found? There was, they say, a good time once in the Moscow University, but not now. Now it's a school, not a university. I was not happy with my comrades, he added, dropping his voice. Not happy, murmured Elena. But I ought, continued Bersenev, to make an exception. I know one student. It's true he is not in the same faculty. He is certainly a remarkable man. What is his name? Elena asked with interest. Insarov Dmitri Nikonorovitch. He is a Bulgarian. Not a Russian? No, he is not a Russian. Why is he living in Moscow, then? He came here to study. And do you know with what aim he is studying? He has a single idea, the liberation of his country, and his story is an exceptional one. His father was a fairly well-to-do merchant. He came from Tirnova. Tirnova is now a small town, but it was the capital of Bulgaria in the old days when Bulgaria was still an independent state. He traded with Sofia and had relations with Russia. His sister, Insarov's aunt, is still living in Kiev, married to a senior history teacher in the gymnasium there. In 1835, that is to say eighteen years ago, a terrible crime was committed. Insarov's mother suddenly disappeared without leaving a trace behind. A week later she was found murdered. Elena shuddered. Bersenev stopped. Go on, go on, she said. There were rumours that she had been outraged and murdered by a Turkish aga. Her husband, Insarov's father, found out the truth, tried to avenge her, but only succeeded in wounding the aga with his poniard. He was shot. Shot, and without a trial? Yes, Insarov was just eight years old at the time. He remained in the hands of neighbours. The sister heard of the fate of her brother's family, and wanted to take the nephew to live with her. They got him to Odessa, and from there to Kiev. At Kiev he lived twelve whole years. That is how he speaks Russian so well. He speaks Russian? just as we do. When he was twenty, that was at the beginning of the year 1848, he began to want to return to his country. He stayed in Sofia and Tirnova, and travelled through the length and breadth of Bulgaria, spending two years there, and learning his mother tongue over again. The Turkish government persecuted him, and he was certainly exposed to great dangers during those two years. I once caught sight of a broad scar on his neck, 
from a wound, no doubt, but he does not like to talk about it. He is reserved, too, in his own way. I have tried to question him about everything, but I could get nothing out of him. He answers by generalities. He's awfully obstinate. He returned to Russia again in 1850, to Moscow, with the intention of educating himself thoroughly, getting intimate with Russians, and then, when he leaves the university... What then? broke in Elena. What God wills, it's hard to forecast the future. For a while Elena did not take her eyes off Bersenev. You have greatly interested me by what you have told me, she said. What is he like, this friend of yours? What did you call him, Isarov? What shall I say? To my mind he's good-looking, but you will see him for yourself. How so? I will bring him here to see you. He is coming to our little village the day after tomorrow, and is going to live with me in the same lodging. Really? But will he care to come to see us? I should think so. He will be delighted. He isn't proud, then? Not in the least. That's to say, he is proud, if you like, only not in the sense you mean. He will never, for instance, borrow money from anyone. Is he poor? Yes, he isn't rich. When he went to Bulgaria he collected some relics left of his father's property, and his aunt helps him, but it all comes to very little. He must have a great deal of character, observed Elena. Yes, he is a man of iron, and at the same time you will see there is something childlike in Frank, with all his concentration and even his reserve. It's true, his frankness is not our poor sort of frankness, the frankness of people who have absolutely nothing to conceal. But there, I will bring him to see you. Wait a little. And isn't he shy? asked Elena again. No, he's not shy. It's only vain people who are shy. Why, are you vain? He was confused and made a vague gesture with his hands. You excite my curiosity, pursued Elena. But tell me, has he not taken vengeance on that Turkish aga? Bersenev smiled. Revenge is only to be found in novels, Elena Nikolaevna. And besides, in twelve years that aga may well be dead. Mr. Insarov has never said anything, though, to you about it? No, never. Why did he go to Sofia? His father used to live there. Elena grew thoughtful. To liberate one's country, she said. It is terrible even to utter those words. They are so grand. At that instant Anna Vasilyevna came into the room, and the conversation stopped. Bersenev was stirred by strange emotions when he returned home that evening. He did not regret his plan of making Elena acquainted with Insarov. He felt the deep impression made on her by his account of the young Bulgarian very natural. Had he not himself tried to deepen that impression? But a vague, unfathomable emotion lurked secretly in his heart. He was sad with a sadness that had nothing noble in it. This sadness did not prevent him, however, from setting to work on the history of the Hohenstaufen, and beginning to read it at the very page at which he had left off the evening before. CHAPTER Eleven. Two days later Insarov, in accordance with his promise, arrived at Bersenev's with his luggage. He had no servant, but without any assistance he put his room to rights, arranged the furniture, dusted and swept the floor. He had special trouble with the writing-table, which would not fit into the recess in the wall assigned for it. But Insarov, with the silent persistence peculiar to him, succeeded in getting his own way with it. 
When he had settled in, he asked Bersenyev to let him pay him ten roubles in advance, and arming himself with a thick stick, set off to inspect the country surrounding his new abode. He returned three hours later, and in response to Bersenyev's invitation to share his repast, he said that he would not refuse to dine with him that day, but that he had already spoken to the woman of the house, and would get her to send him up his meals for the future. "'Upon my word,' said Bersenyev, "'you will fare very badly. That old body can't cook a bit. Why don't you dine with me? We would go halves over the cost.' "'My means don't allow me to dine as you do,' Insarov replied with a tranquil smile. There was something in that smile which forbade further insistence. Bersenyev did not add a word. After dinner he proposed to Insarov that he should take him to the Stachovs, but he replied that he intended to devote the evening to correspondence with his Bulgarians, and so he would ask him to put off the visit to the Stachovs until the next day. Bersenyev was already familiar with Insarov's unbending will, but it was only now, when he was under the same roof with him, that he fully realized at last that Insarov would never alter any decision, just in the same way as he would never fail to carry out a promise he had given, to Bersenyev, a Russian to his fingertips, this more than German exactitude seemed at first odd, and even rather ludicrous. But he soon got used to it, and ended by finding it, if not deserving of respect, at least very convenient. The second day after his arrival, Insarov got up at four o'clock in the morning, made a round of almost all Kuntsovo, bathed in the river, drank a glass of cold milk, and then set to work. And he had plenty of work to do. He was studying Russian history and law and political economy, translating the Bulgarian ballads and chronicles, collecting materials on the Eastern question, and compiling a Russian grammar for the use of Bulgarians, and a Bulgarian grammar for the use of Russians. Bersenyev went up to him, and began to discuss Feuerbach. Insarov listened attentively, made a few remarks, but to the point. It was clear from his observations that he was trying to arrive at a conclusion as to whether he need study Feuerbach, or whether he could get on without him. Bersenyev turned the conversation onto his pursuits, and asked him if he could not show him anything. Insarov read him his translation of two or three Bulgarian ballads, and was anxious to hear his opinion of them. Bersenyev thought the translation a faithful one, but not sufficiently spirited. Insarov paid close attention to his criticism. From the ballads Bersenyev passed on to the present position of Bulgaria, and then, for the first time, he noticed what a change came over Insarov at the mere mention of his country. Not that his face flushed, nor his voice grew louder, no, but at once a sense of force and intense onward striving was expressed in his whole personality, the lines of his mouth grew harder and less flexible, and a dull, persistent fire glowed in the depths of his eyes. Insarov did not care to enlarge on his own travels in his country, but of Bulgaria in general he talked readily with anyone. He talked at length of the Turks, of their oppression, of the sorrows and disasters of his countrymen, and of their hopes. Concentrated meditation on a single ruling passion could be heard in every word he muttered. Ah, well, there's no mistake about it, Bersenyev was reflecting meanwhile. That Turkish aga, I venture to think, has been punished for his father's and mother's death. Insarov had not had time to say all he wanted to say, when the door opened and Shubin made his appearance. 
He came into the room with an almost exaggerated air of ease and good humour. Bersenyev, who knew him well, could see at once that something had been jarring on him. "'I will introduce myself without ceremony,' he began, with a bright and open expression on his face. "'My name is Shubin. I'm a friend of this young man here,' he indicated Bersenyev. "'You are Mr. Insarov, of course, aren't you?' "'I am Insarov.' "'Then give me your hand, and let us be friends. I don't know if Bersenyev has talked to you about me, but he has told me a great deal about you. You are staying here? Capital! Don't be offended at my staring at you so. I'm a sculptor by trade, and I foresee I shall, in a little time, be begging your permission to model your head.' "'My head's at your service,' said Insarov. "'What shall we do to-day, eh?' began Shubin, sitting down suddenly on a low chair, with his knees apart and his elbows propped on them. "'Andrei Petrovitch, has your honour any kind of plan for to-day? It's glorious weather. There's a scent of hay and dried strawberries, as if one were drinking strawberry tea for a cold. We ought to get up some kind of a spree. Let us show the new inhabitant of Kuntsovo all its numerous beauties.' Something has certainly upset him, Bersenyev kept thinking to himself. "'Well, why art thou silent, friend Horatio? Open your prophetic lips. Shall we go off on a spree, or not?' "'I don't know how Insarov feels,' observed Bersenyev. "'He is just getting to work, I fancy.' Shubin turned round on his chair. "'You want to work?' he inquired, in a somewhat condescending voice. "'No,' answered Insarov. "'Today I could give up to walking.' "'Ah!' commented Shubin. "'Well, that's delightful. Run along, my friend, Andrei Petrovitch. Put a hat on your learned head, and let us go where our eyes lead us. Our eyes are young. They may lead us far. I know a very repulsive little restaurant, where they will give us a very beastly little dinner, but we shall be very jolly. Come along.' Half an hour later they were all three walking along the banks of the Moskva. Insarov had a rather queer cap with flaps, over which Shubin fell into not very spontaneous raptures. Insarov walked without haste, and looked about, breathing, talking, and smiling with the same tranquillity. He was giving this day up to pleasure, and enjoying it to the utmost. "'Just as well-behaved boys walk out on Sundays,' Shubin whispered in Bersenyev's ear. Shubin himself played the fool a great deal, ran in front, threw himself into the attitudes of famous statues, and turned somersaults on the grass. Insarov's tranquillity did not exactly irritate him, but it spurred him on to playing antics. "'What a fidget you are, Frenchman!' Bersenyev said twice to him. "'Yes, I am French, half French,' Shubin answered, "'and you hold the happy medium between jest and earnest, as a waiter once said to me.' The young men turned away from the river, and went along a deep and narrow ravine between two walls of tall golden rye. A bluish shadow was cast on them from the rye on one side. The flashing sunlight seemed to glide over the tops of the ears. The larks were singing, the quails were calling. On all sides was the brilliant green of the grass. A warm breeze stirred and lifted the leaves, and shook the heads of the flowers. After prolonged wanderings, with rest and chat between, Shubin had even tried to play leapfrog with the toothless peasant they met, who did nothing but laugh, whatever the gentleman might do to him. The young men reached the repulsive little restaurant. The waiter almost knocked each of them over, and did really provide them with a very bad dinner, 
with a sort of Balkan wine, which did not, however, prevent them from being very jolly, as Shubin had foretold. He himself was the loudest and the least jolly. He drank to the health of the incomprehensible but great Venelin, the health of the Bulgarian king Kuma, Huma, or Roma, who lived somewhere about the time of Adam. In the ninth century, Insarov corrected him. In the ninth century, cried Shubin, oh, how delightful! Bersenyev noticed that among all his pranks and jests and gaiety, Shubin was constantly, as it were, examining Insarov. He was sounding him and was in inward excitement, but Insarov remained as before, calm and straightforward. At last they returned home, changed their dress, and resolved to finish the day as they had begun it, by going that evening to the Stahovs. Shubin ran on before them to announce their arrival. End of chapter 11